listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So I want to take you back in your life to a moment that everyone has dreaded. You've experienced it. I know you have. It's that moment Maybe it's P.E., maybe it is uh, out on the playground, and all the kids line up. And you know what's coming next? Two kids are the captain, and that picking process begins. And then this fear begins to come over everyone because no one wants to be picked what? No one wants to be last. Because here you are, you know, I'm that scrawny little third grader, and... I can't stand on anybody else's ability. It doesn't matter how great my parents were at sports or my friends. I'm standing there all in my patheticness, all by myself. I cannot stand on anybody else's accomplishments. It is just me and me alone. And then the process happens and everybody knows it's always the fastest, the most athletic, the strongest. They're going to get picked first. It doesn't matter if you know all of the football trivia or dodgeball trivia in the world, that's not going to help you when it comes to that selection process. That there's this thing that happens where those that are privileged, those that have the advantages, they get the blessings. And then everybody else is in that limbo of wondering, how is this going to play out for me? And you can't stand on anyone else's abilities or accomplishments. You are all on your own. In a strange way, that is where Paul is going to take us this morning in the book of Romans chapter 2. So the first three chapters of Romans are all about judgment. And I know we keep thinking, man, when is he going to stop beating this drum of judgment? But for three chapters, this is what Paul is going to do because he has to set the foundation of why salvation is so important. Is we have to know what we're saved from. He's going to talk more and more about judgment so that the cross will have meaning by the time we get to chapter 4. And so last week, it was the end of chapter 1, and it was all about the indictment on the Gentiles. And that's a tough passage. Clint did a great job of handling that well of all these sins that the Gentiles were being indicted or accused of. And I can just hear the religious elite Jews going, that's right, Paul, give it to them. Until they turn to chapter 2, because Paul is going to turn the tables on everyone. And so this morning, we're going to kind of see three major things, and your outline would be something like this. It's you're going to see, we're going to talk about God's judgment in three ways. One, we're going to see that it's inescapable. The Jews think they're off the hook, not so fast. We're going to see that his judgment is impartial, and you'll see that it's absolutely universal. Before we do that, we kind of need to know some things because we're going to hit a verse today we have to be very, very careful with. One, we have to understand how these churches were established because you'll see it play into the different groups that Paul's going to be talking to. So all, lead, all roads lead to Rome, and that's the phrase, and it's really, that's true. That's what has happened. Rome was the, the capital of the world. It was the epicenter that everyone wanted to be there. It's where everything was happening. 
So after the day of Pentecost, when the gospel was shared, many came to faith. Many believed and moved into Rome. And you see that even through the book of Acts. So what happens is these churches began, uh, home churches began sprouting up in and around Rome that are made up of Gentiles and Jewish Christians. But what happened is Claudius is the emperor at this time, and in Acts chapter 18, he's kind of had enough. He was tolerant for a while, but when the Jews began evangelizing their neighbors, he said that's enough, and he kicks all the Jews out of Rome. That is until his son Nero poisons him. So when Claudius dies, that decree of kicking out the the Christians is no longer valid. So people begin making their way, Jewish Christians, back into Rome. What happened was these churches began springing up under this Gentile Jewish mindset, but then all the Jews left and these churches began to grow with only seeing things through the eyes of a Gentile. So now all of a sudden the Jewish Christians are coming back and you've got this tension between the two. Because you have one group. They are God's people. They are God's chosen. They have God's law. They have the mark of circumcision. They are under the covenants. And then you have this group that are outsiders. They do not have God's law. They're the ones you read about at the end of chapter uh, 1 where uh, the Jews almost want to have nothing to do with them because of their lifestyle. And so there's this tension that is happening. So everyone is lined up on that that court, and God's about to make his selections. What's happening is the Jews are standing on one end thinking they are exempt from judgment because of their privilege and their status before God. And they're looking at all the Gentiles thinking because they are not God's people, because they do not have his law, they are beyond blessing. What we're going to find today is that is not at all what's happening. So at the end of chapter 1, you'll notice as you read through that, Paul is using pronouns like they and them. And it's written to look at these people that are outside the covenant of God's people. But notice how he begins in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. He's finally turning the tables from the Gentile sinners, the viewpoint, now looking at the Jewish Christians that are reading and hearing this letter read, that even though they had the law, they felt that they were going to escape God's judgment, that they did not have to stand in line and wait for this to happen. They were going to be exempt from it. Because once again, think of their advantages. They're God's chosen people. He picked them out of the world to be his own. They had God's law. They had the covenants, circumcision. They're the ones sitting around telling the stories of their ancestors being released from bondage from Egypt, of crossing the Red Sea, God providing manna for them in the wilderness, and God even gave them a king. But he says, even with your advantages, you still have no excuse. No excuse from what? Well, Paul is about to show them that they've got it all wrong. They believed that they would be excluded from God's judgment because of their privileged status. They were the fastest. They were the strongest. They were the most knowledgeable. And at this point, they probably had to be thinking, well, who in the world asked Paul to come anyway? You know, I liked it when he talked about everybody else, but he's getting a little too personal now. Because notice how he goes on in verse 1. 
oh man, every one of you, notice the pronouns again, you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And I believe they flipped back through that letter and they're going down through that list and they had to be thinking, Paul, you have lost your mind. We're not murderers. We're not haters of God. Haven't you seen what we've been doing over the last seven days? But he's saying you're missing the point. Because if you look back through that list, I promise you, every one of us are going to have some things we go, I'm good there. But we're all going to have some things in that list that are absolutely struggles for us. Because they're thinking, man, we haven't exchanged our natural relations for unnatural ones. We're not murderers. We're not haters of God. But what Paul is doing, he's speaking to a condition that every one of us has. And this condition is, is that everyone in here, we have a standard of good and bad, right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable. Everybody has a standard. You know, it's like everybody that drives too slow, they're idiots, aren't they? They're just idiots. Or everybody that blows by you too fast, they're foolish and endangerment to everybody in the world. Well, then when I drive too slow, I'm just being cautious. Or if I'm going too fast, I'm just in a hurry because there's somewhere I need to be and I'm really important and, you know, I need to get there really fast. And so everybody has a standard that we develop. And that's exactly what they have done. Everybody in this group has developed a standard of good and bad, right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable. And then we like to then hold others to that standard. So notice what he's going to say. In fact, you go back to verse 1, chapter 1, verses 20 32. You'll find that everybody is going to be guilty of something. So Paul is saying whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, everyone is without an excuse. No one has one that is going to stand because we're not the one that gets to set the standard. We're not the one that gets to set that bar because in verse 2, he shows them who it is. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. So God is the one that gets to set the standard. God is the one that gets to hold others rightly accountable for all of these things. And when he judges, notice what it says, it will fall rightly, meaning according to what is true. But we're not the ones that get to decide that. It's his standard of right and wrong, good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable. <coughs> and when he's the one that sets the standard, everyone stands condemned. Because God then will bring down judgment on everything that falls short of his standard. Because the Jews wanted to be the ones to set it. They wanted to be the ones to set it that everyone else had to live up to it. Because when the Jews saw the Gentiles' lifestyles, I mean, they had to be thinking, man, this is so contrary to our laws and the way we grew up. How in the world can they do such things? But what he's wanting them to realize is that they stand just as guilty. 
fact, in our context, I think the closest thing would be, you know, there are those that are raised in church that they get around God's Word with their families. They memorize Scripture. And we try to do all these right things, and they're good things. And then there's those other people, those that are outside of the family, those that don't raise their kids in church, those that don't know God's law. And it's easy to get to the place where judgment happens. Because, man, I turn on the TV or I hear something on the radio and I hear of evil acts that people are doing, whether it's towards someone else or a child. And we see all the evil that is happening. And, man, then I find myself going, God, why are you letting this happen? Why are innocent people, why are they the ones that are getting affected by so much evil in the world? And I find myself frustrated when God seems to not do anything about it. Why doesn't God just take all the evil away? But then I'm reminded, if God was really going to eradicate all evil in the world, that that would include even me. And so what I really mean is, God, would you take all the evil out of the world that's worse than I am? But Paul is trying to put everybody on the same level playing field. Because he's going to show the Jews they are misunderstanding not only God's judgment, they're misunderstanding God's patience. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, which God, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So they're looking around and they're feeling like they're being blessed and God is doing all of these things for them. What they're not realizing is that they're misunderstanding God's, it says, kindness and forbearance and patience. Because they're looking around them and it's not that God is weak and it's not that God is going to withhold his judgment forever. The point is, is that God's final judgment will come and they need to stop being complacent. They need to understand what is really at stake. And they think by their obedience that they're, they're earning all these rewards. And he says, in fact, it's just the opposite. Because of your unrepentant hearts, you're actually only storing up more and more wrath. And so his point is, whether you're Jew or Gentile, God's judgment is inescapable. No one gets to move past that court where everybody's lined up. No one gets a pass. But then he shows them the second point is that God's judgment is impartial. Look at verse 6 and 7. He is going to render to each one according to his works. To those who practice patience and well-doing, seek glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life. And here's where we have to be really careful. If you read that verse again, you could almost make that verse say that if I will do these things, if I will seek glory and I will seek honor and I will seek immortality, then I get eternal life. That that's what I actually earn. But here's what we have to understand. God is, or Paul is not talking about how a person is saved. We're not going to get to that till chapter 4. He's talking about the basis of which a person will be judged. And there's a difference. 
He's talking about a future judgment that will one day take place and what that judgment is going to be based upon. Because notice what he says. He uses the word render. That means to pay back or what you have earned is finally given. And it says according to his works. So there's going to be this day of accounting that takes place. In one group, group A, is those that seek glory and honor and immortality. So here's glory. Glory means no weakness or no defilement in someone. It's, it's a divine holiness. So that's number one if you seek that. Then it's honor. It means approval of someone. In this instance, it's God's approval. So if you can live for His divine holiness and you can live for His approval and immortality, it's a state of eternal joy, meaning not temporary, not just earthly joys. If you can pursue those, and I would say those are things all believers should pursue. And notice how it goes on to say, you don't just get to seek them when it feels good or when it's comfortable, or it fits your schedule. It says you must seek these by patience and well-doing. It means a life that is completely characterized and lived in. It's a goal that is a lifelong, sustained, deliberate perseverance, not just some casual or occasional effort. And if you can do that, look at what your reward is. Eternal blessing. So if you can go and do all of those things and seek them to God's standard for your entire life, then you get eternal life or eternal blessing. But we will misunderstand this if we do not take Romans as a whole. Because here's my first question. If someone was to bring this and say, hey, but this says that you earn eternal life by doing these things. My first question would be, okay, well, how much glory? How much honor then do I need? Or this immortality, this kind of pursuit of joys, then, then what's the bar? What's the standard that I have to achieve in order for that to happen? And who gets to set that standard? But the second one is, <coughs> think about what Paul is going to say over and over again in the book of Romans. Romans 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God, notice it doesn't say through works, it says through faith. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified, not only it says by faith, but apart from works. Romans 4 verse 5 tells us, but he who believes, not who works, believes in him who justifies. Romans 5.1, we have been justified, and it doesn't say works, or achieving, it says, by faith. In verse 11, chapter 11, verse 6, But if by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. So Paul is obviously not teaching that salvation is possible through works because he's talking about what the basis of judgment is going to be like. So then I get to think, of, then why would Paul even put something like this in here? Why does he put a statement like this that can cause some confusion? I think Paul is trying to show that the Jews 
if you could pursue this, because they believe they are. They believe they are pursuing with everything they have, glory and honor and immortality. That's what they are achieving. He wants them to know if you can do that, not according to your standard, but according to God's, then yes, you would achieve, you would receive eternal life based upon that. But the fact is, no one can. In fact, he's setting all of us up for what's about to happen in chapter 3, where everything that we're building our lives upon is going to be torn down to where we have nothing else to stand on. So he's luring them in based upon a false sense of security so that they can see that this is absolutely impossible in chapter 3. But the next option is absolutely achievable. In verse 8, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This idea of wrath is God rendering what sin has deserved. And the word fury is the intenseness with which that rendering is going to happen. For everyone that is pursuing themselves and disregarding others and disobeying the truth, wanting to be their own authority and seeking unrighteousness, that's what they will be earning. And then in verse 9, he walks it back the other way. There will be tribulation and distress. Meaning there is a consequence for a life of evil, evil, and he calls it tribulation. And then he uses the word distress. And this is important because this has a lot to do with what wrath will finally be like. The idea of distress, like you had wrath, the punishment, and fury, the intenseness. Well, you have tribulation, the pouring out, the consequence of a life of evil, and distress. And distress is the mindset for when that rendering is happening. And what he's showing that the idea of God's wrath being poured out on sin isn't just the punishment for it. He's talking about an intenseness and there will be an acute awareness exactly of what is going on and why. Have you ever been a kid and you get in trouble? You have no idea why? You just have to endure that? What Paul is saying is that when the tribulation comes because of the evil that we've endured, that there will be a distress, that there will be an awareness of everything that is going on. But then Paul's going to go back to option A in verse 10. But glory and honor, (coughs) and then he's going to use the word peace, for everyone that does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And here it is, for God shows no partiality. So one option is wrath and tribulation and fury and distress. But the other state is described as a state of peace, of being completely reconciled to God forever. That that's actually an option. But that we see that we can't live up to that standard, that this will be our only option is wrath and fury and distress. But Paul is wanting to set the foundation for that as a life that is completely impossible in and part of ourselves because this was the Jews' mentality. Because of my status, 
because I was raised in this family, because I grew up under the law and going to church, that I'm going to be exempt from God's judgment. And Paul says you're missing the point. His judgment is impartial, that he shows no partiality. He doesn't just pick the fastest and most athletic and the smartest and even the ones that are trying to do all the right things. His judgment is completely impartial. But then there's another one. Not only is it inescapable, not only is it impartial, it's universal. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Speaking of the Gentiles, and all who have sinned under the law, the Jews, they will be judged by the law. And the truth is that the Jews have a greater revelation than the Gentiles do. And they will be held in a greater accountability for that. But no one is without excuse. Because in verse 13, he's going on to say, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Remember, he's not speaking of salvation. He's speaking of the basis of judgment. But the doers of the law who will be justified. His point is, listen, Jews, you're missing the point. Just because you have the law and just because you hear it does not give you an advantage. The advantage comes when you obey and you do the law. And he's even going to make the point that there are some Gentiles that are living more according to the law than you are, and they don't even realize it. Because look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature... Do what the law requires. That it is built in them of some common grace that something is telling them the difference between right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable. And when they obey that, they're obeying God's law. That even though they do not know the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts with their conscience also bearing witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. That even though they are not given the law, they still have a sense of godliness and rightness, whether they realize it or not. And when they obey that, they are obeying God's law. Well, then he makes sure in verse 16 that they understand that it's not just about an outward of performance. In verse 16, he says, On that day, that day of judgment... When according to my gospel, meaning that's the standard, but hold on to that, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That he is the ultimate standard. That he is going to be the judge. Even the things that we think are done in secret. We're saying God's judgment is coming for each and every one. Everyone is going to be lined up. And you must stand there on your own. doesn't matter what family you came from or, or where you were raised. It is inescapable, impartial, and it is universal. And the Jews thought that just because I was raised in a certain group and just because I have the law and I've got the mark of circumcision and I'm following all the ceremonial things that I'm going to be excluded from judgment. But the truth is that everybody has to take their turn. And everybody will stand before God Almighty one day on their own. I don't get to stand in the shadow of my parents or my grandparents 
For what I have done, I have to stand on my own and face him on my own. And so the Jews, he wants them to know that they are not excluded from God's judgment just because they're Jews. But he wants the Gentiles to know that just because they're Gentiles doesn't mean they are excluded from the blessing. And he's going to begin unpacking this over the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. But I want to close with this example. Because there's two men this past weekend, or past week, that both became very, very rich. One of them you're going to know, and one of them probably not. One is named Gary DeSalvo, and another is named Ezekiel Elliott. If you follow football at all, you know that name. This past weekend, or past week, as he's spending some time in, I don't know, Cabo San Luca or somewhere like that, he becomes the highest paid running back in the lead with a $6 million deal worth $90 million. Well, and then there's Gary. Gary DeSalvo became rich not because of any ability, not even because of any achievement that he ever had, Gary became rich by a gracious covenant that he received by faith. Gary graduated from a place called Dallas Theological Seminary in 1981 with a master's in theology. And in August that year, he moved to Temple, Texas. And he took this small little church called Temple Bible Church that's even today. In fact, we have some people that came from there. Well, in 2013, Gary was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive cancer. But man, he faithfully continued over the next six years to love and to lead that congregation the best he could through health and sickness, through pain and all the things that he was going through to faithfully lead that group. And he continued to preach each and every week. In fact, he last preached his last sermon on August 11th when we were here celebrating five years, was his last sermon. Fourteen days later, he's surrounded by his family, his friends, and we would say a cloud of witnesses that gathered around a life that was well lived. He served Temple Bible Church for 38 faithful years and faithful to his wife for 43 years of marriage. But most importantly, is he was reconciled to God forever. In fact, you would take Ezekiel Elliott, he can do things that Gary could never and was ever able to do. And if you were going to pick your team, Ezekiel would be at the top of the list because he outranks Gary in almost each and every way. But if you were to take off the football lenses, in fact, every lens that we judge people by, Gary and Ezekiel stand side by side on even ground. And that is Paul's point this morning. No matter who we are, what privileges we might come from, what advantages we might grow up in, that everyone will stand before God on even ground. And it's not based on our athletic ability or our bank accounts or our achievements or our degrees or our heritage or our DNA. That every man and woman boy and girl, one day stand before God and everyone must face God on their own. The ground is level. There is no privilege and there is no advantage. And everyone is going to face the reality that we read about in Revelation 20. 
In Revelation 20, it reads this way. And I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. But there was another book. It was opened, which was the book of life. And the, je- and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. So Paul's point is whether you're Jew or you're Gentile or you're you or me, we'll all stand before God. And our name is either written in the book or you must face the books. And if anyone faces the books, no one survives that. So the only way to escape the wrath and the fury, the tribulation and the stress is recognizing the evil that is within all of us. And it's something we could never earn or achieve in that eternal blessing. It's only found in faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul will lay that out chapter after chapter for the next 12 chapters. But he must first lay out the reality that we all need to realize that we will all stand before God on our own. And you will either face the book or the books. And no one will survive the books. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.